0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture, I'm Robert Bound. A man wakes up in his bed and realises that he's been entirely physically transformed. The plight of Gregor Samsa is at the centre of Franz Kafka's 1915 novella The Metamorphosis. And it's also the model for a new book. The Last White Man. In this version, however, the protagonist, Anders, awakes one morning to discover not that he's mutated into a giant insect, but the reality that his skin colour has changed from pale to dark. Anders is the first man to transform, but after his metamorphosis, one by one the white people in his surrounding community face the same fate. As a result... Everything changes. The small personal relationships between friends, family and lovers are tested, as are the invisible threads that bind together those who live in the unnamed town at the centre of the novel. Gradually, the society is fractured, as the suspicion of online groups begins to overflow into the real world and the confused new state of the world turns citizens against each other. The Last White Man's author, Mohsin Hamid, is an international bestseller, nominated for the Booker Prize twice and perhaps best known for The Reluctant Fundamentalist. At the heart of both that work and this new novel are powerful questions. How does race alter our perception of the world? And how does our perception of others shape their personality and actions? And I'm delighted to be able to explore those questions and much more today with Mohsin, who joins me in the studio. Welcome to the programme. Thank you quite a lot in that wasn't there in the introduction yeah like a conclusion maybe <laughs> so as we mentioned there in the setup most it's an audacious setup this idea of a man a white man waking up and waking up darker than he started was that the starting point for the book or were you thinking about the politics of race and what might happen or was this just a sort of
1: waking up at three o'clock fever dream brilliant idea kind of start a bit of both i think there was something that happened to me around 9 11 when you know, I was a university educated fellow who'd gone to these elite colleges in the States and had a well-paying job in New York City. And while I was aware of prejudice and discrimination, I wouldn't say it impacted me particularly heavily. And then overnight after 9-11, it became a situation of being, you know, picked up at airports and sort of given additional screening or held for hours at immigration, et cetera. And I thought, how strange it was that although I hadn't changed, people's perception of me had changed. It's as though I had entered into a new sort of ethno-racial category. I think that experience stayed with me. And so as recently we had the Brexit vote in the UK and we had the, you know, rise of Trump in the US and similar things with, you know, Putin's Russia and Russianness or Modi's India and Hindutva, I thought, you know, there's something going on. And I I sort of wanted to, I guess, explore this this narrative this increasingly resurgent narrative of how we belong to these sort of dominant groups and we're at risk and we must defend them Mm -hmm. and try to sort of play with and undermine, I guess, some of the notions behind that. So there's something in there about how deep down do your
0: roots grow and we've laid those roots in the first place. And it also struck me reading this novel and your previous work, and hearing you talk about it as well is the idea of invisibility how in the pleasure of invisibility the requirement to be able to be invisible when you require it but also the available to stand up and be counted as part of the human race or part of the country in which you're in when that's necessary too it's a it's a strange sliding scale to be on i mean as you say post 9 11 that was your reality met that head
1: on I guess. yeah well i think visibility and invisibility are, are very interesting features of, of, of life i suppose If you are visible when you wish to be visible and invisible when you wish to be invisible. You got it right. (laughs) You got it right. Unfortunately, it is often the opposite. So you're, you know, trying to express yourself and put things out in public and nobody's noticing. And then you're sort of walking down the street and somebody thinks you're a criminal. That's the opposite. And I think, in a sense, the novel explores Andrew's experience of that, where, you know, he is becoming a bit invisible in the sense that people can no longer see him as him. And he's, in, in a way, hiding from them. So he's becoming invisible, but also he's becoming visible to people as something that potentially they don't like. And so he's, I imagine, you know, grappling with the notion that although he hasn't changed, when people see you differently, you do change. It's a skin-deep transformation that winds up being a deeper transformation.
0: Yes, yeah, so you, people w- might might view him suddenly in an unsavourable light, yeah. and he uh, you, you might start to live up to that. There's a, as we sort of alluded to in the introduction there. We're seeing he this spirals out of out of control. Militias roam around this small town, and he one Anders as a now brown man wonders
1: if he was still white would be on that militia and it, yeah. it
0: questions. He's looking in the mirror all the time.
1: Yeah, initially with sort of a sense of anger and almost yeah. repugnance. But, but later, uh, he's unable to help thinking a bit differently. So Anders doesn't want this to have happened. He wants this to be in his imagination. And then he asks his girlfriend, Una, to have a look. And, you know, how bad is it? And she tells, well, look, you don't look the same. You're a different person. How bad is it, Doctor? <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's such a... I mean, yeah. you know, and then, um, and then he goes to work and he tries to communicate that he's still himself. But what he discovers is that when you try to be unthreatening, when you try to be natural, when you try to be yourself, it's very hard to be those things. It's incredibly unnatural to be acting natural and incredibly threatening to be acting unthreatening. And he gets in this strange situation where he's starting to copy other people who he thinks are acting in white ways to show that he actually is white. When he discovers that that's sort of the opposite of what he, you know, if whiteness was kind of his default setting, he's now something else. And and he stumbles into a, you know very sort of tricky ground.
0: There's a, a wonderful cast of characters in the novel. And I wondered, we've talked about this sort of sliding scale of, of how you perceive yourself and how you, the perception of you makes you behave. He's a gym instructor, Anders, and he goes, He eventually, after a week of kind of searching his soul and wondering what he's going to do, he goes into work, or maybe it's more than a week, goes into work, and the gym boss, who's a tough guy, white guy, still white guy, says, oh, I killed myself. That had happened to me. And he's, he's horrendous and dismissive in equal measure. It's an amazing thing. That That's one of those things. There's a kind of, the tone of the novel is, and I'd love to, we'll, we'll go on to talk about the tone of the novel. It's got an amazing calmness to it, considering what what happens in it. But this scene where the gym boss says, i oh, will kill myself, hits you. It's, I think kind of near the start of a chapter and just hits you right between the eyes. There are some sort of set piece. I know this is necessarily a set piece, but there are some set pieces in the book that really take the breath away. Did they come during the writing of it? Did they come with the flow of writing or were there certain sort of boxes of fireworks you wanted to you wanted, to yeah, well, throw in the direction I, of the bonfire? I, I, I,
1: you know, I think that partly what I decided to do was to, to write the book without in a sense, evident judgment of the characters. Mm. And to just let people say things and be things, the reader could decide how to judge and how to feel about these characters. But the book, in a sense, was not going to take on that role. And and you can call that a sort of calmness, or in a sense, it, it's a position where the point of view of the book is somewhat ambiguous. You know, mm. Are we in Anders' perspective? Are we in his father's? Are we in his gym boss's? One sentence, we might be in all three of them. We move in these long sentences from one point to the next. And for me, that was important because I thought better to create this kind of imaginative experience that the reader gets to sort of co-create. You know, you said earlier that it's set in an American town, but other people have told me slip it's of said,
0: the slip of the tongue. Well, but amazing. you know,
1: some people said it's it set in Britain or set in Scandinavia or set in South Africa, and I think readers are imagining into it a great deal. And I think that, as far as this comment of Andrews's boss, you know, race is a very uncomfortable topic. And what I think a novel allows us to do is to go into a very uncomfortable zone, but in privacy, sort of, you know, in seclusion. It's just us, just the reader by themselves, having these reactions. You know, what do you make of Anders' boss? What do you make of Anders? And if what Anders' boss hits you, you know, why does it hit you? For me, that was, I suppose, the journey of the book was to try to create this imaginative experience that the reader could have. And the reader could figure out for themselves what they think it means.
0: Yeah, I think then that's the string that's run through all your work is you can have this conspiratorial relationship almost with your reader, readers, whoever you don't have to imagine who's reading the book, but it's a wonderful trick to have to kind of jemmy in through a kind of a door at
1: the back of someone's
0: head almost. Well well
1: it? it's it's also you know, for me it, it <laughs> comes down to like what does the novel do now? So to a certain extent, you know, film and television make the world look like the world. So you see things that look like people and streets and you know where you are. In a novel, you see something which looks nothing like the world. It's words on a page. And the reader is creating, in a sense, the film of that experience, what people look like and what it sounds like and where it's set and you know, who's playing these roles. The reader is the casting director and the cinematographer and the location scout in the novel. I think that that's, that's, in a sense, one of the powers of storytelling that's built from words, is that it involves a much greater role of co-creation on the part of the reader. And if that's the case, then I think that it makes sense to write books that are sort of invitations to readers to imagine their own stuff. And, you know, when we're kids, we sort of play house or we play, you know, pirate or astronaut or whatever. And two or three of us get together and we imagine a world and we inhabit it and we become adults who are different from who we actually are. I think a novel is a chance to do the same thing. We get to enter this make-believe space. And so my novels are, in a way, built that way. They're built as kind of shared make-believe exercises between reader and writer, which might be in a sense off-putting to some readers because you might say, well, I want to be told, you know, what the novelist thinks, or I want to be told how to react to that. I write nonfiction and I do sort of say what I think. In a novel, oftentimes what I'm trying to do is is to create a space for the reader to to imagine stuff and then to reader to sort of reckon with what they think.
0: Mm, I love that. I mean it's on that subject, Musin. I wanted to what do you think about the kind of trend? Maybe we can call it a current trend towards a sort of very obvious morality in art and fiction, perhaps especially, where you have to pick a side. And it seems to me to be a kind of chipping away at the
1: edifice of art being able to be fictional well, in I think, a way. Yeah, I mean, you know I, what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I think that, you know, that that art does carry politics with it. Mm. And of course, everybody can read books based on whatever their viewpoint is and decide what they think the politics of that book is. For me, the question is, where does the novel have its most powerful potential impact? And of course, there are novels that sort of are overtly political, where it's clear what the politics of the novel are and still hit home, you know, true. Mm -hmm. And they really make you feel. I don't discount that at all. But I think that there's also enormous space for fiction that doesn't do that, that in a sense is engaged in a different project. It's still political. But its politics is one that is specific to the novel form. In other words, its politics is the politics of having somebody make something up in their imagination, and then seeing what they feel about it. And, you know, Reluctant Fundamentalist*, my first novel ends sort of ambiguously. My second novel, actually, it ends somewhat ambiguously. And, and many readers would come to me afterwards and say, "Well, how did it end? You know, well, how did it end?" And you know, tell me that what happens afterwards. The sequel maker. Yeah, exactly. And it, 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 it was, it was, and I would say that. It ends the way you think it ends. And if you have an instinct about it, how it ends, when you don't have enough information to know, you know, what happens at the end of that book, that instinct tells you something about you. Mm-hmm. Is there violence here? Who's going to? And so I guess, you know, in, in, when you talk about, you know, art and how it can function politically, aesthetically, there's no one answer for different artists. Everybody does their own thing. There certainly at the moment is a kind of, you could say, representative impulse in art of, mm-hmm. you know, telling my story and or people like me. And I think there can be enormous validity in that, in that impulse, you know, when there are stories that haven't been told and have been marginalized. And in a way, autofiction is the ultimate expression of that, where the novelist is character also. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also a completely different aspect of writing, which is what about imagining being somebody who isn't me? You know, what if I want to pretend as a boy being a girl or if I want to pretend as an old man being young or as a young man being old because I've never been old or if I want to pretend what it's like to be in a small town in an unnamed country with light skin becoming dark. I think that transgressive side of art is a huge also component of art's power and one that is
0: important. As I was reading it and nearing the end, I kind of wondered what it would be like a British Pakistani novelist and a Pakistani British novelist to write it as a a brown person turning white, or a dark person turning white, yeah. and I wondered whether that would have been a more transgressive thing. And then I thought of all—I thought of what would have been written and judged about that. And I thought, what well, happens if I would write to write this book, being a, a Caucasian man? That's why it's such a good idea because it, it raises so many questions.
1: Yeah, so. I, I think in a sense there, there is this question of, of of how do we grant ourselves permission mm. to make art. And particularly, you know, in a very polarized society, when we're increasingly encouraged to be suspicious of people who are on the surface different from us, what domain can we occupy as artists? And I think there's no one answer to that. It's a fraught question, and everybody has to approach it in their own way. So there's no general rule, you know, can Brown, you know, men age 51, write from the inside at 20 something year old female yoga instructor who's white? I mean, who knows? I don't know if there's an answer to that question.
0: I think there is. I think you've done it.
1: Well, yeah, I, I think it comes down to, you know, what is your intention? What is the execution? And what is your appetite for dealing with people's response to what you've just done? There's a price. To making art, aside from the price of, you know, uh, spending a lot of time doing this this fairly peculiar activity, <laughs> and that price is that people react. So for me, this transgressive, transmutational, imaginary side of art is very important. It's a tricky door to open up, but it is also a door which I don't believe should be closed down.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating. It was. Particularly interesting and coming to the end of the book and wondering what the flip side would be, because the the book is all about the flip side. Yeah, well the flip I side guess, was right? I and thought it's... the flip side. You know, you, yeah. you
1: said what well, what happened if it was a bunch of brown characters, let's say, becoming white. And I considered that at one mm. point. But I thought, you know, in a sense, if I were to do that, two things would happen. First of all, I think the transgressive power of taking on characters who are not on the surface like you. And offering to imagine them with a the reader, and then the reader having a kind of gut check. Does this feel real enough to you? Mm. Does this feel imagined in a human way, or does this feel obviously false? That's what the reader can respond with, and, and I, I wanted that opportunity. The other part of it is, I thought, you know, the danger of doing the opposite is, in a sense, it becomes a novel of assimilation, that imagine that you have these characters who have been described as brown, who now get to be described as white, it felt to me that that project is one that sort of has been explored a great deal, you know, assimilate. And there's a deeper question, which is if every attempt is made to assimilate and assimilation is still impossible, then perhaps there was no potential for assimilation. And perhaps the question is not how do we allow us to see people who have dark skin as light, but how do we banish the sorting mechanism of skin color in the first place so we are unable to differentiate people into racial categories? That seemed like a more interesting Topic to explore.
0: Yeah, for sure. And your novel doesn't deal in the hierarchies of it. There's a binary thing that, that is yeah. slowly changing, and I, th- I thought that was an interesting thing too. That you're not. There are no darlings being killed, and t- there are no. There, yeah, there is no hierarchy. There's no. There's no. There's no kaleidoscope here.
1: It's, yeah, well, you know, in a sense, it's about if we imagine that we, we've imagined race into existence, right? There are different ethnicities and darker and lighter skin, etc. But when we get to these racial categories which we see you know constantly blurred as people you know somebody shows up I remember my father's very light-skinned he's Kashmiri ancestry and you know once somebody said to him meeting him outside Pakistan oh you didn't tell me you had a Pakistani wife and he said you know, I'm Pakistani <laughs> too right uh, and and it, yeah. so where, attract, yeah, and it was one of these funny moments it's always a track man yeah it was one of these funny moments where he suddenly dawned upon him, and they didn't realize that you know he was from Pakistan I think that we you know these categories are so weird and I think they've sort of been imagined upon us you know when Columbus went out looking for India and sort of stumbled across the Americas, he was leaving a Spain where the reconquest of Spain, as it's called, mm. was, was just completed. And sort of after centuries of Muslim rule, just back under sort of United Catholic taking rule, Taking back control. Taking again. back control. Yeah. <laughs> the, the original taking back control. What could go control. wrong? <laughs> well, the question that they asked in those days in Spain wasn't, are you of North African heritage? You know, are you white? The question is, are you a Catholic or are you a Muslim or a Jew? Mm. So at the moment that Columbus sets sail, it isn't racial categories that are first in people's mind. It's something else. And then we have invented, I guess, our current you know, racial system post that. My sense is that if it came into existence in the last 500 years... It's a new invention. It's quite likely it won't exist in five hundred years from now. Something else will come into existence, and so I guess this novel is is exploring the idea of what if we nudge that around, uh, nudge that along, and, and saw so what what would happen if it happened in a couple of years instead of five hundred. Yeah, it's a great point.
0: Thank you for ta- tackling that head on. It was fascinating stuff. My this flowed from talking about style, didn't it? Talking about the sort of detached style of the narrator. When I say detached, also, I mean I found the narration beguiling because and it reminded me and I hope you don't mind me mentioning other novelists names it was slightly like Ballard slightly like Ishiguro that and also the the whole lot of it's a bit swifty isn't it It's kind of big let's pretend this whole thing's changed and we're we're tiny little guys and we we look completely different and that's audacious i thought that that gave also the reader some distance to make their own mind up i'm sure that was part of the part of the reasoning for that but your narrator there's a flow of thoughts. The narrator is making up their mind as, as one reads the book. And that's a, a nice thing to see that it's all about metamorphosis and change the book. But that happens even to the narrator, it seems as well. Yeah. That's, that's, in terms of defining that style and keeping that style on track, because that's tough when you're just... The word document is running
1: away with you, one hopes. <laughs> How did you keep that style so intact? I had this idea that there would be these long sentences and that within Mm. a particular sentence we would encounter different viewpoints. So you'd be in Anders' head. Then you'd be in Anders' father's head. Then you'd be sort of this omniscient third-person perspective looking at the whole world from above. And as the sentences got you comfortable with the idea of shifting perspective within a sentence, Mm. in a sense that would echo the character shifting their perspective and maybe the reader shifting their perspective, and also building sentences where something is said and then it's sort of qualified, maybe from somebody else's point of view, maybe the idea is played with, maybe something from the past is brought up. I think that that human thought is fluid like that. We often imagine that we think something and we do think certain things, but most of the time we're playing with something. So if we haven't tweeted it or we haven't written it down and presented other people When we do that, it becomes, in a sense, fixed. It's performative. You know, if I say I like this book, I must then defend that I've liked this book from somebody who says that they don't like this book. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, what happens is of non-written down human language and human thought is we'll we'll say stuff and a friend will say, well, you know, what about this? You'll say, you know, that's true. Maybe. And we play with it. I think if we allow ourselves to be, humans are quite supple in how they think. And the sentences were meant to sort of have that suppleness. And so you said, in a sense, that the narrator changes their point of view. And the idea of who the narrator here is is a bit unclear. But it is true that, that the characters and the complexion of what's going on shifts. And the sentences are doing the work of hopefully allowing the reader to accept that shift.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's just such a successful part of the book. I mean, it's a sort of disinterested narrator. and that, Which is great when you're throwing some big intellectual coals on the fire. And some kind of argumentative coals on the fire. It's quite good to have a narrator who's got a
1: fire extinguisher. Yeah, well, in in the sense sense that I think the narrative tries to leave room for the passion to come from the reader instead of from the narrative voice. Mm. In other words, we're talking about stuff that creates strong feelings. So it isn't necessary for the sentences themselves to always have those feelings. The sentences can sort of present... And also the way that they, you know, partly I think what you're saying is this kind of disinterested or dispassionate. I think the effect of being disinterested or dispassionate maybe comes in part because the book is built with lots of commas and few full stops. And the effect of a full stop is that, you know. I did some counting. Yeah. I'm not,
0: I've got, I haven't got the stats, but you're yeah. right. There are some long it's,
1: it's, it's, lo- it's long sentences. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so in, in, a, in a comma, what happens, I mean, all punctuation is a pause. And, you know, writers use punctuation the way that musicians use, you know, breaks between notes. And so you set up your rhythms and your cadences. A full stop is a break. It's a time when you can stop and step back and, take and think, you know, wait a second. What do I think about this? The comma is a forward-leaning pause. You, you take a breath, but you keep going. You don't get to stop, really, on a comma. Now, the effect that creates is when emotional things are happening, if we don't stop and we go by them, in a sense there's a i guess a dispassionate nature to that like wait this is something very important and yet with the sentences going on yeah. well, why don't we stop here for a second and and assess and partly the reason for that is that i guess the novel is trying to smuggle in experiences and and slightly delay the reckoning of those experiences. So that I suppose it's the echo of the experience in the reader that the reader hears, as opposed to the pronouncement of the emotion of the experience that the the novel gives you. Yeah, I love that. It's... uh... You can hide quite a lot in a a long sentence
0: as well. You you kind of go, hang on, did he just say that in the middle? There's something about that which has also got... It's
1: a rhythmic thing as well. There's the rhythm of... That's hugely important because, you know, if you you think about oratory, you know, orators, why is Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech so effective, right? It's effective, of course, because it's wise and it's true. But that's not enough, right? That stuff has always been true. And the wisdom, you know, people will reject that wisdom. It hits home because he establishes a cadence and then and a rhythm, and then each word feels in a musical sense the appropriate word for the composition. You hear him say one word, and then you think that's the right word, and then the next one, and each, each of the notes hit. So you, in a sense, are listening to the musicality of what he's saying or to the, you know, to the cadence and rhythm of it, and you're thinking, yes, that's the right word, that's the right word, that's the right word, and you get to the end of it, and you feel like all those words were the right words, I might think I disagree with what he said, but somehow all those words were the right words. (laughs) Now I need to reckon with what those words were. And that's the way I think that, in a sense, sometimes... The rhythm has done the
0: work of getting the message through the door.
1: Yeah, the rhythm, exactly. The rhythm has done the work of allowing the message in. And once it's sort of, you know, through the ear, it can do different things than if it's sort of stopped at the door. To go back to
0: The Last White Man specifically, to the novel, you mentioned something about if you put your what you think about something on social media it's up there, but it becomes performative. You kind of have to fight your corner and it's up there forever and perpetuity. I was interested about the character of Una, who is the 27-year-old white woman yoga instructor that you, you alluded to in an, in an earlier answer, seen, And she wants to be an influencer. She's not maybe she's not dedicated enough to it. I don't know whether she thinks she's she looks too good or not good enough or she's not the right sort of something. Anyway, the, whatever the magic formula is for being one of these influencers... And she goes, and I don't want to spoil it, but there is a quite a, a satisfyingly shocking scene where she goes downstairs to confront her mother, who is old-fashioned in her beliefs on race. That's a shocking scene, and that seems performed for her on social media as well. There's this element of who you are in real life, whatever your skin tone is, and then how you do that online. That's sort of deftly alluded to. It's not a huge part of the novel as well. Was that sort of always part of the organic process of writing that? Or was that something you kind of, I wouldn't say wanted to tick off, but that's obviously such a a boiling pool of, of opinion, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is. What were your thoughts on engaging with, with social media with, through the character of Una, especially? Well,
1: Una is somebody who's, who's felt the pull of social media mm. and has sort of turned a little bit away from it, partly because perhaps it hasn't worked out the way she'd like, partly because she recognises kind of an addictive quality and because she's recently lost her brother and sort of doesn't want yet another craziness in her head. She just wants to find some other thing. She doesn't know if she's quit it, but she's sort of off it for now. At the same time, there is a kind of, performative experience that she's curious about. And she's, you know, before she changes and becomes dark, she wants to know what she might look like if she became dark. And, you know, she thinks, you know, what if I were to make myself look a bit darker in my photos? Or what if I were to use makeup to become darker? And what if I were then to present myself in this darker way? And I think a lot of what does happen in sort of social media is a performative act. I decide that uh, I'm going to be this kind of a person. And then I sort of Play the character of myself, you know. Una, in a sense, is trying to depict the character that she might be, and to see how that feels. And she's trying it on. In a way, fortunately for her, she only shows it to her mother, and she doesn't have to commit to it. And in any case, who knows how the world would have reacted to her attempt? Maybe with horror. Her mother certainly does. But I think that's part of what's happening in, in our in our social media landscape that there's a performative aspect to it, which has both a liberating component, try on what you want to be, an incredibly entrapping component, which is now be authentically what you've just pretended to be. And the idea of achieving ever-heightened levels of authenticity, of a pretense, is a hugely anxiety-inducing experience. And so I think, you know, I had a brief time on social media. I found it both addictive and incredibly Mm anxiety-inducing, and so I got the hell off. But I think most people don't. See, for every young aspiring novelist, they have to do it. I suppose. i was still right? part to do and it. parcel. Part and parcel. Now
0: you, you've been there. You don't.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I, I was told to do it. And I tried it. I <laughs> oh, really. And, and you know, and I mean, I've had friends who've suffered from addiction, and I can see it in myself. And I, I thought, you know, I'm checking way too often how people are reacting to what I'm saying, and I'm trying to do things to get good reactions. And I thought, you know, what a well-engineered machine. Yeah. This is incredible. It's too well-engineered for me. I need to get off. I began to feel that that the performer of me that would most succeed in it is probably a performer that I would slightly despise, yeah. <laughs> and so and so, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to become the, the other most in having yeah the one with a million followers who hates himself, <laughs>
0: yeah. and that way lies madness. We will be tweeting about this program. Yes, <laughs> and just finally, there are a couple of scenes that stuck in my memory, but I wanted to ask you about the scene with the female police officer where. I can't remember whether it's who gets stopped whether it's Una or Anders gets stopped by a police car they have a nice interaction and the narrator says this police officer seemed like a nice woman and she played her role well or she played her part well there's no mention as to whether she's light or dark simply that she played her role well and I thought that <laughs> thought that was could have been very well followed by an ellipsis could have been the last line in the novel maybe was it important to you to not define their color?
1: Well, you that know, police. Yeah, police that, woman. so in that, that interaction, that's Una actually, and she's driving. Yeah, and she sees a police officer, and you know, she sort of smiles, and, and the police officer gives her a look, and that look conveys something very strong to Una—a kind of police officerly feeling. <laughs> and and the thing to Una is that that the, the woman doesn't look to her like a police officer should look. And whether that's because she's already, you know, at this point, almost everybody has changed. And so is it because, you know, she just looks like the wrong sort of person in some way. And yet what's conveyed in the essence of that look in the eyes is, you know, you will not mess with me. And this is a police officer you're interacting with. And so Una feels that although this person isn't presenting the way she might imagine a police officer to present, her police officer-ness is profound and well conveyed. And I think that's, that's, for me, an interesting part of it, which is that, you know, we count on these cues of presentation as almost substitutes for character. And it's interesting to see what if our presentational cues start to break down? Can we recognize character despite that? I guess it's all the clothes you wear and the, the face you show to the world, right? I think it is those things and then and then it isn't. Right. So there's the presentation of yourself, which is all of, all of those things, the clothes you wear, how you show yourself. And we expect that that will be it. But there's also something beyond that. Right. There's sort of an, an innate aspects or deeper aspects of the human animal. And, you know, whether that is a police officer looking at you and conveying whatever they look like, that this is, you know, that there's a power relationship here and you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. Mm-hmm. Or whether it's, for example, you know, Anders' father, you know, who in some ways was for me a bit like the, the last gunslinger. He's like this, this hero in a Western. And he has to muster his courage for one last gunfight, except the gunfight really is with his own death. And so he's this heroic figure in an unwinnable battle who tries to muster the courage to do that. And so in a sense for him, despite that he's at the end of his life, he's very weak, he's dying, he needs to find a way to convey in his character the strength that he wants his son to take with him after he's gone. And so, you know, his appearance is that of a withered, you know, dying man. But what he is communicating is something different. The idea of, of the role of generations is something that's faded away in contemporary life. We we imagine, you know, that, that maybe there isn't one. But throughout human history, you know, the older generation has always, in a sense, been asked to... Or or taken on the duty of giving things to the younger ones, you know, especially as you're getting older, wisdom, but also a better world. And today what we see is something the opposite, you know, where where an older generation is bequeathing, you know, a debt-ridden, environmentally devastated, completely unequal world, in what feels like a kind of abrogation of this historical generational role. And I think partly it's because, in a sense, the question of whether the younger generation really is the younger generation of, of this older, if these children are really their children or just somebody else. Mm. And so I guess what the novel looks at is is also very closely is this idea of intergenerational love. You know, Una for her mother, Anders for his father and vice versa. Because I think that's a huge part of the question, which is to what extent are all of us as we're getting older, you know, going to continue to play our ancestral human role of providing something decent to those who are younger? Or to what extent are we going to say there's too different from us That's not our role anymore. And the reason why that's important is I think, you know, it's a duty that has given meaning to old age. You know, we think of old age as this sort of withering end of things. It's also an incredibly important, you know, stage, not just to pass through but to perform from. And so I think Anders' father is trying to make sense of that stage.
0: Well, thank you for giving us that fresh perspective as well on uh, The Last White Man at the end of uh, our time Mosin Hamid, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Mosin Hamid. His book, The Last White Man, is available now, published by Hamish Hamilton. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Steph Chung Goo, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>